In Alabama, where I'm from, you have to pick sides. Staying neutral isn't an option. Football culture is so essential to life in Alabama that people in that state don't know what to do when someone says, I cheer for Florida State. Or worse, I think I'll cheer for both teams. Or even worse, I don't care much for college football. <laughs> people don't know what to do about that. You have to pick a side. It doesn't matter whether you like college football. It doesn't matter whether you prefer an out-of-state team. If you live in Alabama, everybody wants to know Alabama or Auburn. You have to declare that from the beginning. And if you're from Alabama, it's likely that that choice was made for you before you were born. <laughs> and if, God forbid, you end up going to the other school, then your family's preference Thanksgiving weekend gets pretty lonely because there's a good chance you won't be invited to the table after that. Since moving to Arkansas, I've been fascinated that very few people stop to ask me which in-state school I choose, which <laughs> team I cheer for. Of course, your chuckling reminds me that there's only one major football identity in our state, which is why most people don't ask me that. But after weekends like this one, I'm starting to understand <laughs> more deeply why that's the case. But Arkansans who know what football culture means to someone from Alabama they're gener generous enough to give me space to talk about something dear to me. And so they ask me which of the two teams I cheer for. And when they ask, I don't really want to tell them. <laughs> because I'll be the first to tell you that Alabama fans are obnoxious. <laughs> the bumper stickers and the t-shirts and the houndstooth everything. The made-up national championships the obnoxious chants, it goes on and on, and the people who portray this usually haven't even set foot in Tuscaloosa, much less graduated from the university, but still it goes on. And so when you ask me what team I cheer for, I'd rather keep it a secret, even though a voice in my heart will always whisper, Roll Tide. <laughs> I recognize that's not popular around here much. And keeping that secret, hiding that identity, after reading this gospel lesson, reminds me I'm in pretty good company. Because Jesus, when he's walking with his disciples on their way to Caesarea Philippi, says to them, who do the people say that I am? The disciples gave the kind of response that lets us know that Jesus was already considered by the crowds to be a, a pretty powerful leader. Some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets, they answered, revealing that Jesus had captured the imagination of the crowds. They'd already begun to believe that something great was going to happen in this one. But then Jesus looked at his disciples in a quiet moment when no one else was around and said to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter looked at Jesus and said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus told them not to tell anybody else about it. Why? Why? Why, Why not tell? 
Why keep that a secret? Why would Jesus tell the disciples to hold on to that, to keep that information from the crowds? Being the Messiah is a jolly good thing. And in the case of Jesus, it's a true thing. Why would Jesus want to keep that from the people? Why wouldn't he encourage his disciples to say, we've found him. We found the Messiah, the heir of David, the one who has come to deliver God's people. Why, why would he keep that a secret? Maybe it's because Jesus didn't want the crowds to be confused about what team he and his disciples were really on. Because to a faithful Jewish ear, the label Messiah wasn't just a term used for an exalted religious figure. It was a unique theological designation, and it carried with it unique expectations. We don't bandy about words like John the Baptist or Elijah as if they were meaningless, and Jesus' contemporaries didn't either, but it was conceivable that a leader among God's people could be another Elijah, another figure like that, the same way that we might describe a, a rising star as a new Martin Luther King or a new John F. Kennedy. But no one is another Messiah. That term carries with it too much, too much expectation, too much hope. The Messiah wasn't just someone to lead God's people, but to save God's people from all that ailed them, from all their perils. Back in first century Palestine, you didn't have to pay attention to politics in order to know what it was that was God's people's peril, because Rome was all around. Everywhere you looked, every street corner, every bit of coinage in your pocket was a reminder that Rome ruled, and they ruled with an iron fist, the kind of fist that kept God's people oppressed physically and economically and spiritually. Everybody knew that the greatest hope of all was God's Messiah would come and set God's people free from that Roman tyranny, and to whisper that word... Messiah was to allow one's heart to begin to sing with the expectation that maybe, just maybe, this was the moment when God would deliver God's people. But this Messiah didn't want any of that. This Messiah wasn't interested in a political or physical rebellion. This Messiah, our Jesus, had a very different understanding of freedom in mind, a path of freedom that begins with suffering and struggle and hardship. Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If the disciples tried to convince the crowd that Jesus, their master, was the Messiah, the one to go to Jerusalem to be betrayed by God's people, the crowd would have none of it because that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the one who finally shows up with the power to defeat Rome would be defeated by his own people. Even the disciples struggled to get a sense of what that means. Peter, with these conflicting images swirling around in his mind, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him a shocking behavior, even for Peter to rebuke his master. And Jesus, when he saw the disciples watching, took the opportunity to teach Peter that unless you understand this truth, this way of being, 
you're not on God's side, but the enemy's side, the side of power that stands against God's reign in the world. It's not easy pulling for someone who will lose. It's hard to get excited about someone who's going to give up. No one looks forward to pain and struggle and loss. And I don't think Jesus is asking us to look forward to those things either. But he is asking us to see that those are the characteristics of a holy life. And that that is the place where God and God's people are to be found. Jesus didn't come to earth to set God's people free by raising up a mighty arm and crushing the oppressors. He came to set them free by unwinding a system that depends upon power to gain, wealth for prominence, glory in might. For all of human history, we've been plagued by a system that says the world is only governed by that way of being. But Jesus came to strip it all away and to show us the way God really works among us. That's the side Jesus is inviting us, his followers, to be on. Is that the side we choose? Is that the side the world sees in us? If any want to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For any who would save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. Any takers? It's not exactly a pep talk, is it? In fact, it sounds like a terrible strategy for building a church. But as Michael Curry, the presiding bishop, reminds us, Jesus didn't come to start a church. He came to start a movement. A movement of people who are willing to follow Jesus from the way the world is today into the way the world could be. God's dream for us and for everyone. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks us today. Who do we say that he is? Most people I meet who brag about being a Christian don't seem to know the first thing about following Jesus. People who follow Jesus are those who know what it means to give up their life to yield their claim on where they are headed so that God's way of being, God's strange and upside-down way of being, might become a reality not only in their hearts but in the world around them. And you know who they are. I know who they are. We see them all around us. Those people who show us that the world doesn't have to be the way it has always been. That in the victory that God gives us in his Son, we discover a new possibility, a new life, a life that we call resurrection. And those who would journey with Christ into that new way of being must first follow him on a path of self-denial and struggle and hardship. Will we walk down that path? Will we let God's reign break through in our hearts? Will we become an image of God's love for the world. If that's the kind of life you're interested in, you're in the right place. Because we are a people who believe that honoring God with our lives is as important as honoring God with our lips. 
We are here because we believe those things are possible and that those things begin with Christ reigning in us and through us. If that's the life you're after, if that's the meaning you're searching for, welcome home. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.